Hello, welcome back, everyone. Uh, welcome back to BungaCast, the global politics podcast at the end, the end, the end, the end, the end of history. That's what we're going to be discussing today. Um, you're listening to this in January. I hope you're not having a dry January. Um, hope you have a wet January. I don't know. This is uh, an already episode. Wet. It's already well. Yeah, I mean, here it's the, the rainy season to, you know, push away any suggestions of any other connotations of, of what a wet January might be. Anyway, um, we're recording this actually at the end of the year. You're hearing this in uh, the, yeah, you're hearing this in mid January, I think listener, but for us, at least we're recording this on the 30th of December and have a, that kind of ominous sense of ending um, that sort of doomly sort of feeling, but for you listener, that, that might not be the case. You, you will have already lived through the end you will perhaps have listened to an episode we unlocked, a recent discussion which we've had uh, with Lily Lynch on NATO and the end of neutrality in international relations as more countries join up with the Atlantic bloc. Uh, that was available only to patrons, uh, but we've now unlocked that because we think it's a good episode and everybody should listen to it if you um, are not yet a patron. Then patrons will also have heard our interview with Chris Cutrone on the death of the millennial left. And now uh, we're going to have a very weighty theoretical discussion about the end, about modernity, utopia, and um, facing up to the abyss before us, all cheery topics, and uh, I'm very happy. Finally, an extend a welcome, very, very belated welcome to uh, Julian Fiori, um, who you can see there if you're watching this on video. Julian is an essayist and the director of uh, the Alameda Institute. He also has a PhD in intellectual history and was a rugby player at the Olympics. So, um, you know, very accomplished person. Uh, Giuliano, hello. Hi. Um, thanks a lot for having me. Uh, it's, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, no, I'm looking forward to having this discussion. And, uh, you know, George and Phil as well, who are uh, in the UK. Hello. Hi. <laughs> Don't sound too enthusiastic that we're uh, we're both. Yeah, here I didn't. As well. I didn't mean it as an afterthought. I, I, I just, <laughs> yeah, the, the introduction yeah. fell at the wrong place. It got all confused. No. Happy to oh. be here at the end of the year. <laughs> Made it through. So what we're going to be talking about is, um, well, the last utopia, the final utopia, perhaps, or the last liberal utopia of human rights and humanitarianism. Maybe it was the last one. Maybe maybe wokeism was the the last utopia. Though there's a question about whether wokeism even represents anything utopian. So um, maybe that's something that we'll, we'll touch on. But we're dealing with this now. We're recording this in 2023 when certainly on the left, there seems to be incredibly little hope um, about, little expectation of political advance, um, which is a pretty different situation to where we were, you know, three, certainly four or five years ago where there was a rebirth and left optimism. And the decline of that optimism, I think, has had loads of impacts on the way the left sees the world and what it, um, what it rallies around. And perhaps, you know, if we think about what the left is rallying around today, it's maybe Palestine and, and climate change. And that's about it. Neither of which are 
particularly um, kind of hopeful subjects. N neither seem to provide avenues for progress, um, let alone radical transformation in any obvious sense anyway. So we're going to talk about humanitarianism first, and you're going to see where this leads to, because the next section of this is going to be on catastrophe, on ending, on the sense of, of perhaps there being very little left little rope left in, in liberal democracy. And then finally, we're going to finish on what it means to organize around this notion of ending, something that Julian was very interested in, uh, in, in kind of uncovering, discovering and discussing, um, and has written really interesting things exploring this issue. Um, and we're also going to ask whether, you know, does that mean emergency politics? Does it mean circumventing democracy? What does it mean to organize around catastrophe? So to get uh, to get cracking. I think maybe it's worth just setting this up. Um, I'm going to ask this to Giuliano, but also Phil should jump in because he's also written a lot on this issue, studied it a lot. What was humanitarianism? Where 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 did we place it uh, historically? What were its ideas? What it did, what did it represent? Well, I, I think it's may, maybe a question to which I should offer a qualified response. Um, that is because to talk about what was humanitarianism suggests that humanitarianism itself is dead. And I'd probably not want to make such a grandiose historical claim, partly because I think it's sort of akin to, to saying liberalism de is dead, which is something we've obviously heard a, a lot of in recent times. And although liberalism is a modern ideology and I'd see humanitarianism as something like an ethos or a political ethos with its own inbuilt sociodicy, there is a declinism among aid workers and self-professed humanitarianism uh, hu humanitarians i think is is relevant to discuss but there is a continuity as well uh, that runs through from sort of 19th century humanitarian ideas and practices to the contemporary time and i've i've written on post-humanitarian reason i've i've made reference to a post-humanitarian reason which i suppose is an attempt to get to grips with an emerging tendency to engage in the so same sort of emergency practices that were associated with humanitarianism in the long 1990s, but without any attempt to offer a sort of universalist pretext, that is, without any attempt to even make reference or allude to the universal value of life. And, and that seen in some attempts, failed attempts to to uh, mobilize so-called humanitarian interventions, but also in extreme forms of humanitarian government. That, that's not to say that the, the post bit is, is, is the, most dominant, <laughs> the do most dominant feature of, of, that, of, that, of that term that I use. I suppose I'll put post in, in, in brackets there. Uh, and that's partly because I think if we look back to humanitarianism in the 19th century, late 19th century in particular, and the way it was mobilized as a, as a concept. It related to um, progress, to evolution, was often grounded in sort of positivistic ideas of, uh, of evolution. Um, Karl Mannheim, in his discussion of ideo ideology and utopia, talked about a liberal humanitarianism and the pinnacle of, of it being the idea. Uh, and this, this is prevalent in the work of many self-described humanitarians at the turn of the 20th century. But there's a role for imagination in humanitarianism that is looking beyond the present. This changes, however, quite considerably through the, through the course of the 20th century. 
And if we think about what we understand, generally speaking, to be humanitarianism today, or what is the, the, the dominant understanding of that term humanitarianism, it, it comes about in, in the aftermath of the, the crisis of the 1970s, and in particular, the rise of a new form of cross-border humanitarian response to conflict and disaster, which is much narrower. It's about emergency response. And it, it is essentially a form of moral moral practice in the present, uh, a way of up, up, upholding certain ideas or certain ideals uh, in the present to make the present livable. I think what we what we see emerging with this sort of post-humanitarian reason is a is a is a sort of concession or, or submission to uh, an impossibility of reason, an impossibility uh, to, to know things. There is a, a, an interesting work that's been done on this by, by a social theorist and anthropologist Mark Duffield on post-humanitarianism, but a move from what he calls homo economicus to homo, homo insius, right? the, 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 the unrational or irrational uh, being. But what I'm talking about when I, when I discuss humanitarianism as, as a broader concept, and, and I suppose this is what you were making reference to with what was humanitarianism, uh, it, it's it's really about trying to understand the role of this humanitarianism, humanitarian ethos or the moral, moral politics of humanitarianism in the context of um, structural changes that have occurred over the last 50 years. So rather than than adopting the, the approach which is quite dominant, certainly within aid discourse, uh, which is to see humanitarians as cleaning up the mess left by politics and, and doing so in a time when they're, they're trying to rescue mm. uh, rescue the possibility or the hope of progress. I would tend to see a, a humanitarian politics, broadly speaking, uh, as something that emerges most particularly in the moment in which the future no longer seems possible. And so connecting the emergence of this, this humanitarian politics to, to a closing off of horizons and a closing off of horizons once capitalism has reached its outer limits. So with the process of internationalization of capital uh, and, and globalization in general, the, the, the disappearance of an outside seems to make any horizon of, of, of expectation uh, beyond the present poss uh, possible. Uh, impossible, rather, sorry. Um, mm. and, and with this, a humanitarianism that emerges as uh, the, the, the only thing that, that's possible, the only practice that's possible uh, to try and try and recover some sort of uh, meaning even to, to uh, collective life. Right. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, so it seems like it, more the following away rather than necessarily a, a change within humanitarianism, but the following away of other ways of seeing politics that leaves kind of humanitarianism being the last idea standing at the end of history. Is that kind of how you would It's more than it? that, though, I think, because what, the, what strikes me in the discussions about humanitarianism, it becomes this kind of vortex and to which all sorts of uh, previous kind of frameworks get sucked into. So, for instance, I mean, you know, very kind of, I don't know, as very banal, not even banal, I mean, they're not banal, but say discussions about urban development in the past that would have been talking about, say, you know, building cities, um, city planning and so on in um, developing countries, post-colonial countries, 
that becomes kind of folded around discussions which are, as Giuliano says, kind of based around kind of survivability, adaptability, humanitarianism. So discussion, any kind of discussion about which would have traditionally been, you know, understood as melioration, but in the in a context of progressive improvement of some sort, with a horizon, becomes kind of reworked around the humanitarian ethos, and so I think it's in a way like it's much um, it kind of it restructures all different all different kinds of policy and discourse domains that would have been framed differently in the past. I think so. It's much bigger than um, I think than just the kind of the image we have in our heads of uh, you know kind of a crisis, a conflict, or something, and aid workers. Yeah, and I, I think here if we, if we think about the images that. Uh, humanitarianism, the concept might conjure for us, um, particularly in the post-Cold War period, or at least from the 1980s onwards, we might think of live aid and then and then um, response to Ethiopian famine and then the, the militarised humanitarianism of the 1990s. All of these are very much situated with a, within a, a worldview or emerge from a worldview that is about trying to bring the periphery or let's say what was the third world uh, up to speed with the rest and so humanitarianism is a thing that the west does to the rest and i suppose what i've been trying to do um not for for, for moral reasons but for 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 sort of trying to for intellectual rigor and political reasons perhaps uh is to try to understand the emergence of humanitarianism as this moral politics or this ethos uh, in a way that demonstrates its application within liberal democracies as well. And so I, I talk about the society of the humanitarian minimum. And what I mean then is by expanding the concept of humanitarianism to, to relate it to a, a minimalist uh, moral politics is to try and think about the relationship between these activities of big aid agencies uh, on the periphery, but also the way in which um, uh, government in in Western liberal democracies re was responding to a reduction of expectations and and the the only need only only remaining necessity which was to maintain some form of uh, survival um, a sort of biopolitical mm. form of form of government let's say and and that so like the the well, I mean, just I was going to ask. So, I mean, the decline of developmental expectations for you know the the, the old third world then kind of comes home, as it were, as well. That there's like less, there's diminished expectations of you know first world development or advance, or at least for sections of the population who then get treated in humanitarian terms. Is that right? Yeah, well, yeah, I, I think, you see and, and you've you've written on Brazilianization and peripherization, and 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 I think there's definitely a, a connection here, and in. In one of the essays that I that I shared with you about mel melancholia and, and humanitarianism, I, I make the link between peripherization and the rise of of uh, humanitarian politics. But but I'd also see that as as working dialectically. Uh, it's not just something that is is brought home unidirectionally. There is there is a process through which. The, the emergence of, of states or powers on, on the periphery also relates directly to the emergency politics that is being generalized. And, and that is happening not just through 
the sort of mechanistic processes of, of development, but also through certain kinds of struggle, right? And struggle for for uh, national liberation from the, in the decolonizing period, uh, and then and then struggle for for rights within um, what were let's say. Um, uh, modern modern democracies that were incipient and already in collapse at, at, at birth. Right. I mean, has it like the mood? I'm not even going to ask this as a question because it's obvious. The mood music has obviously changed. Like us as, you know, you as a citizen in a, you know, if you're in a first world country uh, or in the capitalist core, you as a citizen or, or more appropriately as a consumer, you know, used to be called upon to help poor suffering people out there. And obviously, those appeals are kind of ring especially hollow today, and will I think get kind of short shrift mm. today. So, at least at that level, we're not being addressed as potential humanitarians anymore. I don't think. And I, actually, you've you've written that, you know, kind of referring to to Trump, to right populism, to various other phenomena um, that all of these have put paid to illusions of gradual and continuous inclusion in the humanitarian present the last utopia of a moral society unencumbered by ideology has thus dissipated so there's a lot to unpack there but um i don't know if you want to comment yeah, on, so, so, <laughs> on, so on that. going back to what i said previously about the emergence of the kind of humanitarianism uh, that, that is recognizable to us today um, in the crisis of the 1970s, the closing of utopian or revolutionary horizons. Humanitarianism for many, particularly a new breed of young, enthusiastic humanitarians, in the, in the case that I, that I draw upon in, in, in the essay that, that I mentioned, is, is the one of uh, French humanitarians, in, in, particularly, in particular uh, uh, Doctors Without Borders. And the move away from what they saw as ideology uh, towards a kind of moral politics. And so humanitarianism itself became not just anti-totalitarian, but actually because many of them were Maoists and, and certainly leftists, at least, anti-communist to some extent. And so it was a reaction to previous ide uh, uh, utopian ideologies, which were suddenly seen as, as dangerous and, and were no, no longer uh, are valid. As such, the the idea of uh, humanitarianism as as a force for inclusion within liberal democracy and even uh, sort of in its neoconservative um, variation uh, promotion of of liberal democracy becomes a sort of negative utopia. And and what I mean by that is is a, is a utopia that is defined by its negation of all previous utopias. And it, it's still utopian in the sense that it involves a totalization of a particular present that doesn't exist. What, what I mean by that is, of course, there are aspects of liberal democracy that, that humanitarians, the more zealous, um, let's say, anti-communist anti humanitarians of, of this period, recognized in the West in particular. But that it was those elements that needed to be generalized or totalized. And I think that is that is a, a proposition which, in a sort of softer form, a more form more 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 amenable to to um, to a, a, a sort of societies that were no longer really interested in in politics as contestation or as a dispute for the future anyway. That that became very attractive, and it became attractive not just to centrist technocrats, but to those on the centre left and centre centre right. Of course, there were those 
on on the left who rejected this this premise, rejected the idea that there was no no revolution anywhere, and there were those on the on the far right who were never really interested in in the universalist politics of life anyway. Um, but broadly speaking, I think this is perhaps the the humanitarian utopia, which I, I described then as as the last utopia because it negates others, is in some sense the most expansive and inclusive utopia of the of all the modern utopias. And it's that that seems to be directly challenged with the various movements that emerge in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And most significantly, I think, with um, the movements uh, that emerged sort of around 2015, 2016 uh, in Europe and North America, Trumpism to some extent, that, that targeted a humanitarian discourse as the root of uh, the root of the problem facing uh, facing industrial and post-industrial society. Right. Yeah. I mean, well, obviously, you know, Juliano for listeners, uh, you know, it lives in, lives in Brazil, lives in Rio. And obviously, I mean, I think for, for us here, the rejection of, of human rights is something which um, is like corrosive of, of the body politic is something that has been um, very present, I guess, in, in, through Bolsonaro one, but before that as well, I mean, any kind of like law and order politics would, would, would kind of seize on that, but it, it was particularly present kind of more recently in, in seeing as that, which, um, which impeded, you know, having a degree of civilization, at least as they saw it, because, you know, the human rights is, um, I'm trying to translate, direitos dos manos, but, um, you know, kind of, uh, it's, it's like the rights of the, it's not human rights, it's rights for the rights for criminals, basically, you know, that's what human rights is ultimately, you know, ultimately is. Yeah, they, they say, they say, but, uh, um, human rights for right, right humans, right? Right, basically, yeah, yeah. So I mean, obviously, it's it kind of being kind of collapsing from the humanitarian discourse, kind of collapsing or being attacked from 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 various sides, right? Um, I don't know, Phil, if you want to, if you want to. Um, well, there was something because so thinking about it, I wonder if things have come full circle with uh, what's happening in Gaza at the moment, um, because there you have the kind of the perhaps the classic exemplar of a third world, an old third world third world liberation movement the Palestinian struggle. And in the context of Gaza, you know, on the one hand, the Palestinians have more solidarity, support and sympathy around the world than they ever have done in the past, I think it's fair to say. But at the same time, the sympathy is overwhelmingly, it seems to me, humanitarian, essentially. It's concern for Palestinian suffering rather than support for a Palestinian project or for what the Palestinians could potentially achieve were they to carve out more rights for themselves or establish an independent Palestinian state. That doesn't seem, you know, kind of to factor in at all to any of the discussions. And yet at the same time you have this kind of this um this empty wish, I suppose, or this kind of placeholder of Palestine will be free from the river to the sea, the slogan of so many of the marches, without any meaningful, you know, there's no meaningful agent to kind of carry that through. It's an empty wish, you know, kind of an empty, um, a placeholder for something which I think, uh, I think it would be fair to say most of the protesters, demonstrators probably have no kind of sense of what, what it would mean to give substance or to fill up that slogan. And so the default, what occupies that is just humanitarian sympathy, you know, kind of a ceasefire, 
permanent ceasefire, a humanitarian pause, give, you know, bring in aid. So, it, yeah, I mean, I suppose I'd be curious to hear yeah. your thoughts because it seems to me that humanitarianism is just kind of the the period that we're in indicates that humanitarianism is still very strong, even in the kind of era in in the aftermath of unipolarity, in the aftermath of globalization and so on. And to the point that it's now fully annexed an old kind of third worldist revolution, completely annexed it seems to me. And there's nothing outside of it, essentially. Yeah, look, I think the first thing I'd say in response to that is I would never want to disregard the hopes for a future of any people struggling or those expressing solidarity with them. And and that's despite any illusions that I might see that, that, that permeate those hopes or that might provide a sort of uh, insta- unstable basis for those hopes. Just because, not, not, not because I think necessarily, you know, through force of will, a future can, can be invented, but that there is enough at stake there's a lot at stake in what's going on to recognize that people often need to project through through their imagination, even sort of subjective imagination, just to be able to survive in the present. The, 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 the future, even, even in its sort of idealistic um, configuration, has a, has a function in the present to keep people going. So I, I, I wouldn't disregard that. On, on the other hand, I, I recognize certainly what you're saying um, when you when you point to a sort of dead end uh, of of politics and political struggle uh, on the periphery more gen- uh, more generally, but but in the context of, of Palestine, and I think placing the Palestinian struggle, the Palestinian cause, uh, within a broader context allows us to to see what might have been exogenous factors. I think if if you look about the way in which Palestinian movements under the umbrella of the PLO projected ideas of a, of a different future, of freedom, of freedom beyond the, uh, beyond necessity, even that is something that starts to disappear in 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 the late nineteen seventies uh, and nineteen eighties. In fact, it, it starts to disappear really when the, the PLO concedes to the possibility of a, a, a two state solution. Um, and I'm, I'm not saying that you know, with any sort of passing any moral judgment on that, but that, but there is a there is a, a concomitance there. There's these things these things happen simultaneously, and it also happens at, at the same time when any sense of um, Israel as a socialistic project, you know, of, of, of the kibbutz, mm-hmm. and, uh, that also disappears, and it disappears in the in the 1980s with the more radical introduction of, of neoliberal technologies, um, with the Attempts to try to create of or make of Israel a base for uh, or a new base for um, ventures of of global capital, uh, and so there's a disappearance of of a future that is very much tied to the dis- dissipation of of uh, the, the the horizon or, or, or utopian horizon for for the Palestinian struggle. I think in the case of of, of what's been happening recently, that is expressive. In in the way in which people respond to to the seventh of October, um, that there is a, a tendency to not concentrate on the politics of of, of Hamas, for example, uh, but also on the politics of Israel's security 
posture um, and just see it as a sort of dialectical exchange of violence. And that is itself expressive of, uh, very expressive in, in my view of a sort of modern catastrophic logic that maybe we might get onto when we talk about catastrophe. Right, yeah. Well, actually, maybe we should move on to that now because, you know, I think nowadays the, I guess the premise of this, to put it kind of bluntly, is that, you know, shit sucks and, and it doesn't look like it's getting better. It, it, it's basically that, the, you know, the guarantees of a, of a stable, relatively free life have been slipping away in most developed countries. I think, you know, we were talking about utopia. I think utopian dreams most likely died in the 1970s. I'm not sure if there was a, a future iteration of it. Perhaps liberal humanitarianism was it. Um, I don't know. Then, you know, the welfare state got eaten away. Then the culture seemed to stultify and become ever more commercialized. Uh, and then the, the bubble of security that existed in, in, in the 90s burst with 9-11 and with, with increasing acts of terrorism. And then on the other side of it, accompanied by increasing state power and surveillance. So that was gone. But, you know, at least the economy was growing. And then the global financial crisis tore away at that as well. And then if you were on the left, at least there was some moments of expectation with um, with the protests, with the mass protests around the world, or with uh, left populism, and that seems to have gone as well. So, I mean, whether if you're not on the left, I think you probably share this kind of feeling. And on the left, you probably have it even more, um, it's more intense, it's compounded, I think, by the fact that uh, there's the contrast between some sense of hope and expectation versus what the horizon looks like now, which is to say, um, that there is no real horizon, it seems. So I would, I go, would go qualify. Well, I'd qualify that slightly, Alex. Which is, I think, it's um, that feeling of pressure. I think in um, core states is much more recent than even the global financial crash, because I think. Oh, really I agree. It's, uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really the return of higher interest rates that and inflation together that is really kind of made palpable that sense of insecurity so i mean obviously you know in countries like greece and spain in italy were devastated by the sovereign debt crisis that came in the wake of the financial crash in 2008 by the mid 2010s they were under that pressure but in terms of you know and i think in, there was that real sense of insecurity and you know you had all the mortgage foreclosures in the us but i think really that sense that there that you, there were ways, you know, that kind of your standard of living could still be protected. I think that is the thing that has been most yeah. decisively eroded, in particularly in the kind of um, core Western states in the last few years. And that's principally, like I say, higher interest rates and inflation. And that, I think, is still kind of to play out. So I suppose all I'm saying, I mean, I'm not disagreeing with the way in which you set it up. It's only to say that it's two very concrete and relatively recent changes, I think, that have really kind of put the pressure, have put the squeeze on, you know, even states which had up to this point, as a result of quantitative easing, managed to escape the worst of the global financial crash in such as the US, Britain. Germany in, in a different context. And now those, you know, those countries um, 
you know, ordinary people who nonetheless managed to protect their living standards up until then, I think, are feeling feeling that um, instability and precarity much more. No, I, absolutely. I, I, that's um, yeah, a worthwhile corrective um, in, in saying how recent it is. But also, you know, something which we've discussed before, you know, that Germany was kind of one of the last holders on to the end of history, that it still lived in this kind of post-historic bubble. Um, and now things have come home to roost for Germany too. So even countries which seemed to, to a certain degree immune um, are now also facing the sense of everything suddenly crumbling and slipping away and, and on, on loads of different terrains, right? Like the, the culture is bad, the, the economics don't work, the, you, you feel it in your pocket, but also politics is bad, right? So th- this compounded sense of things slipping away um, makes you want to ask uh, to everyone, I guess I'll come to George first. What is there to hold on to? So, I mean, what's left of Western liberal democratic modernity? Yeah. What are the what are the what are the silver linings? What are the rays of hope? I mean, yeah, it's not an easy question to answer, but it, the first thing that there are some, you know, there are some good things left, and it's ba- what, they're basically what, what are they, George? They're basically bourgeois rights. We still have these, at least nominally. So, freedom of speech. You know, freedom, freedom to associate all these things. He, said, which he says from like, England, where if you send the wrong sort of yeah, tweet, the police turn about? up your house. Like, I mean, what, uh, like, <laughs> what freedom have, is speech? We have we have these things nominally, and we need to um, we need to regain them substantively. But yeah, I mean, I don't know. I was trying to. I, I was um, chatting about uh, chatting with a friend of mine in the pub last night. Like, what what was the best film that you saw this year? What was the best music? You know, we 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 really struggled. It's not a kind of, it hasn't felt like a shining year in cultural production. You did mention this, Alex, but yeah, I think there are still, there are still some things about Western liberal democratic modernity to, to hang on to. Um, But you probably have to kind of start right from the very beginning. So that's why you start from the, start from the uh, liberal bourgeois subject and build from there. But but I mean, this liberal bourgeois subject, I mean, as we've discussed many times before, um, isn't really there he's been replaced by i mean juliano made reference to I, I forgot the term you used but somehow like the kind of irrational subject or something but also the you know the vulnerable subject and in any way you know the, the kind of traditional liberal bourgeois subject is long gone so i mean i i asked the question provocative because i'm obviously working towards something else but you know it's still worth being blunt like what actually is there to to hold on to yeah i mean that vulnerable subject that is the dominant way that we see ourselves and that is you know, that's I guess in some ways the the basis for humanitarianism or or for a lot of contemporary politics is that we do see ourselves and others as you know fundamentally very yeah very very vulnerable and or vulnerated already having been been injured and in requiring some kind of recourse of some sort. But yeah, I mean that's that's the it's almost got to that level of kind of basicness or essentialness that you'll you're not even thinking about some of the institutions you're just thinking about the you know the starting point and it's not even there Juliano, uh, well, I, I think I think the starting point is there, but I think maybe that's all there is. <laughs> and and uh, this is a, a point that I've I've made in, in in a couple of texts that the process of 
the, the development of modernity is one that it that, that itself has proven to be fragmentary. It, modernity fragments. And in fact, we can say that certainly in cultural and, and, and moral terms, but in fact, in material terms, we can also see that ultimately that is what has happened. And it ultimately ends up stripping us back to the barest form of our, our existence, sort of bare life. And from that position in which we are naked to the world, we're forced to change our relationship to it. And I, I don't, I don't say that with sort of any sense of a, a catastrophic alert, act now sort of thing. But but that there is a there is a sense, at least to me, in which certain illusions have dissipated and, and things become clearer. Certain ideas about even historical subjectivity, about a concreteness that that would underlie certain struggles for, for a future necessarily are challenged by material developments. And that forces a, a rethinking, even I say tentatively, a reimagination of the way in which people all for a future. But then I think, George, you, you are right. I, I, don't, I don't think bourgeois rights have been entirely, entirely done away with. There are struggles within social institutions that are hard won uh, through, through centuries of struggle that, that something of them remains. And we see this even in the, the, the welfare state. I say that again, some degree of, of but there are people who are uh, fighting hard to maintain universal rights to education and to health. And that shows that we're not absolutely dead yet. And, and from that, there is always some, some hope. And in fact, from the destruction that takes place of, of those, the destruction of those institutions, there is also, a, I suppose, dialectically, a, a hope that is that is built into that process. And that is ultimately a, a modern process of progress to some extent. Um, and that is when things are done away with, we can, we can see more clearly. In fact, apocalypse itself has that, plays that very, very role. The apocalypse reveals to us the essence that, that was always there. Now, I suppose w which apocalypse we're, we're talking about is a, is a question we'll get on to. Just to, just to jump in there, Alex, I mean, the, it makes me think of this, this conversation we had about Goran Thurborn's kind of big analysis of like the 21st century, which in some ways is the most pessimistic, it's way more pessimistic than talking about catastrophe, because his basic claim was that, you know, during the 20th century and previously, you'd had these developments which had produced their, their own kind of contradictions, and that's, you know, driving things forward. And he says, well, now you don't even have these processes that create things which or f historical forces that will change them. So it's like the most kind of stasis, doomerist version of like contemporary history. But I guess, Giuliano, what I guess you're saying if I'm understanding you correctly, is that there is at least <laughs> there is a way out through apocalypse uh, in a way. So that kind of catastrophe is a you know at least it's a it's a kind of overturning of of some sort. Whereas I think Thurborn would say no, that's there's no there's no dialectics which create things which will negate the present. We're going to be stuck here forever potentially. 
I mean, we're going to, I think, delve a little bit more deeply into this and hopefully we can kind of work together um, in, in kind of trying to figure something out today. Um, but I'm not going to let Phil get away. Um, no, so we... don't worry. I wasn't going to let you get, let me get away either. <laughs> yeah. So I think, uh, I mean, this is going to sound, this is going to sound a bit parochial perhaps, but the really was brought home to me how bad things were when I, um, when I read a piece in The Economist of all places talking about how the golden age of TV is over. And it made, you know, the case about how kind of uh, Amazon and Apple um, and Disney kind of muscling in onto streaming services mean that they're much more concerned with um, promoting their own brand rather than making good TV. The return of advertising to Netflix and the end of the year of low interest rates mean essentially that the freedom that the writer's room had in the era of the Sopranos and Breaking Bad and Mad Men and all the other kind of lesser shows that emerged in that period too, or even better shows, you know, ones I've not mentioned, that's gone. And so I thought like, that is really, that is really something I could put up with all the other crap around, you know, like all the terrible politics, all the terrible things happening in the world. But if you could come home and kind of turn on a good TV show, then at least there was some kind of refuge from it. Right. And that's gone too now. And so I thought like, yeah, that's right. Cause I haven't actually come across a good TV show recently that you would be able to talk about that. You could be confident that your social circle, either friends or at work, were all watching and would kind of make a focal point of conversation. That's gone. And so perhaps the, mm. you know, the eclipse of that kind of private refuge is both hopeful and pessimistic. What but, do you mean? So you have to kind of leave the house in the evening now? You yeah, you've got to leave the house the in the evening and kind yeah, of wander okay. around well, the, the streets the, like see, a zombie. They were right when they were critiquing the culture industry. This is what it did. It kept you, <laughs> kept you passive, kept everyone at home. flew to the TV at home, and now, now you have to go out there. So I think I think that to really have that effect, I think you would need to kind of, you know, like, I mean, I read, I don't know how accurate it is, but it certainly stuck with me that the big thing that really brought people out onto the streets during the Arab Spring was when the government started blocking social media, because then people were forced to go out into the streets to see what was what was actually happening. And I think you'd probably have to have something, you know, if there is any kind of effect of the, um, any impact of uh, those, you know, kind of new communication technologies, I think it would probably require something of a similar magnitude, a total shutdown to provoke that kind, in a particular social and political context, to provoke that kind of response. But beyond beyond the end of the golden age of TV, I would say a reason for hope, I think, is that the the exhaustion of populism and technocracy, that kind of the end of that dialectic, um, which is unfortunately not imminent, but I think it will play itself out. And I think that is something hopeful at the end of the day, because I think what's um, what we can see in populism for all of its um, kind of um, crudity and bombastic emptiness and you know all of the problems associated with it, whether it's populism of the left or the right, is a stirring. It's a stirring of mass politics. You know, very weak and fumbling in the dark, and with all sorts of problems. But it's an attempt. I think our pe- people are searching for ways to articulate themselves in a collective politics that has, um, you know, thus far been eclipsed, not least by. A kind of uh, humanity, you know, not least by humanitarian visions of 
of uh, what is kind of of what social order and development should look like. So I think in that context, I think there is, you know, we can look forward to the to what comes after populism and liberal technocracy, because at least for the foreseeable future, I mean, this is, you know, we're saying this on the cusp of 2024 and what's going to be an enormous year for that context between Trump and Biden, as well as in the UK and other big elections. Um, and so we've got, an, you know, there's a few more kind of electoral cycles to run, I think, before people start trying to look beyond technocracy and populism for um, better political forms. But that seems to me broadly, you know, kind of um, that it has possibilities once that cycle begins to exhaust itself. Yeah, I mean, well, you know, I, mean, I, don't, I don't want to sound anal, but I mean, the, you know, I wasn't trying to get to what we might be hopeful for, but what seems like the collapse of the West, a collapse of modernity, whether there's any kind of line of continuation that even, you know, we don't have to, we know the politics isn't good, but that there might be something deeper, sort of engine of modernity, which throws up new forms. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, I say the West, but, you know, if you think about it, like, you're not, there's not really much to hold on to when you're looking at China. I mean, there's an incredible growth machine there, which is able to pull along maybe other countries. And at the very least, um, kind of disturb previous arrangements, which maybe is good, but maybe isn't. You know, so you're you're just holding on to the fact that stuff is changing. But as a civilizational example, you know, in some ways, it's it's far more scary than than what than the West's own retreat from liberalism and democracy um, in terms of the the kind of degree of surveillance that it represents and the way that. I think Western politicians are tempted to imitate China. So, you know, like, I, I only say this as a way of kind of um, maybe a bit of throat clearing, but say, you know, we, we talk about kind of a moment of like the decline of the West, but, you know, it's not economic, relative economic decline, perhaps political and, and um, in, in kind of hard power terms. But um, as a civilization, it doesn't seem to be like a question of just the West. It seems like a kind of a global experience. Any, but who knows? Maybe they're maybe they're making good TV in China, so it's all right. <laughs> Alex, I, I'd I'd be interested to hear actually what what Phil sees as coming after uh, the dialectic of what we call the dialectic of um, technocracy and populism. It, it, are, are you are you saying that that you see hope emerging from perhaps the the hyper politics that that might push through push through that that dialectic i, I asked that before you, you referred to cultural or cultural forms and it seems yeah i mean i suppose i mean i suppose the point about the tv thing was a, a tad facetious but um uh i suppose it was just that there seemed you know that there seems to be such you know so little on offer only way you look i suppose was I, what i was getting at but with res in response to your question about what I see beyond only that, I think the, you know, populism is the beginning, potentially at least the beginning of a new mass politics, you know, kind of looked at in a historical frame um, from the vantage point of a possible future. You could look back on this period and see that this was the era in which um, the, you know, kind of the era of unipolar globalization, which was dominated by 
politics was understood in purely liberal human rights terms, humanitarian terms, as that era falls apart and partly under populist pressure and electoral pop- revolts that take populist forms, that you get disturbed, you know, people are searching for new ways of collective, uh, collectively ordering their life. And so when they realize that you know, populism won't provide the answers that they're looking for. And that's a process which, you know, which is a process of social learning. It's not just a, it's not sufficient for just having a theoretical critique of populism. People, I think, need to learn, you know, that the promises are empty or um, limited, that people will begin looking for um, for other kind of ways of uh, of doing mass politics, which are better than populism. And I, I mean, you know, certainly other people will look for things which are worse than populism, no doubt, but at least there'll be um, political openings. So I think in a kind of, in a long term, in a long time frame, I think um, there is potential, a potential kind of uh, hope for a revival of mass politics in advanced, so-called advanced democracies. I think if, if we think about the, the, the dominant social and cultural form of the last 20 odd years is I think the, the platform or you know, the, the surface, the de- depthless surface, in fact, that Friedrich Jameson talked about as, as characteristic of, of postmodern cultural forms. But, but we see that as well with, with the, the movements or non-movements that, that emerged after, after uh, the financial crisis. And it seems to me that in the 21st century, we've seen, uh, divisions or boundaries etched into that depthless surface surface in a way that that didn't they didn't exist um perhaps in 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 the 1990s that is new inside outside distinctions that are suggestive of a social antagonism but they they never they never really amount to such they they express themselves in political form um or in 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 moral disputes about often about identity but the the fluidity of of postmodernity seems to seems to have been done away with. In fact, even we might say we're in a sort of post-ironic age now. And and as such, there seems to be a question as to whether we can give to that that, that platform life, or that, that that depthless surface on which we exist, on which we conduct our social lives, some sort of profundity, some sort of greater depth in our in our political engagements that is recognizing that these new divisions emerge how do they um, establish themselves with with depth to be able to form the basis of 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 new mass movements yeah Yeah, indeed and i mean i would go further i mean i'd say even like i think that postmodernism is the era of um, low interest rates right that kind of sense of superficiality and fluidity very much coincides with the 30, 40 year period of historically low interest rates um, that begin in the kind of mid to late 80s and stretch up right throughout the era of quantitative easing. Um, you know, Alan Green, during the Clinton era, Alan Greenspan era, right through to quantitative easing. And that era is over. I mean, interest rates are going to go down likely in the next year um, in Britain and in America. But nonetheless, you know, they're going to be at a higher level than they have been. And it's going to make it much more difficult to sustain, uh, keep the show on the road by through debt, which has been, you know, which is the kind of the postmodern kind of economic yeah. model. So that seems to me to be, you know, um, that it will change the stakes. It will change the kinds of pressures that ordinary people are subject to. 
as well as you know having all sorts of forcing all sorts of recalibration in terms of the position of different uh, groups and classes. And so I, how far that will cut more deeply into social antagonism, you know, I think that will um, that will become clearer in time, I suppose. But uh, part of that will be like title, you know, also the year of tighter labor markets and the fact that labor has greater bargaining power. Again, it's a very, you know, you don't want to kind of overstate it, but it seemed the kind of the slow... The slow, um, the crawl of uh, union organizing and union militancy out of historic depths, that also seems to me to be good and hopeful, but without, you know, I mean, that's, but we're talking on the time frame of decades, I think, both in terms of um, populism and in terms of greater uh, self-assertion by workers and labor organizations. Yeah, I mean, I guess the troubling aspect of, of a turn away from the superficiality, surfacelessness, consensus, and and uh, you know, kind of fluidity and malleability of, of postmodern culture and postmodern society is that antagonisms are increasingly expressed in essentialized terms, um, and that's that's rather troubling about today. You know, that it kind of returned to you know ethnic and and whatever um, other identifications. You know. I think, you know, there's a bit not to get onto this, but there's you know the debate even amongst trans whether that with whether trans is all about fluidity, about being one thing one day or another thing the next, or actually really about a, a, an essentialness about I essentially identify as this inside me, and therefore I need my body to to conform to that. Um, and I kind of think it's the latter, you know, and and so there's lots of evidence of this turn to essentialism, which I think is a lot more troubling because it would be suggestive of an end to any kind of enlightenment universalism especially because it's kind of across the board you know the right does essentialism of course obviously but the left does too but i i, I don't want to get into that so unless anyone's dying to to um, add anything to that I wanted to move on and because we're working through something here, or at least that's my intention with this episode, which is that, so you have the sense of crisis, right? And you can pick whatever one you want, um, whether it's climate change or the risk of nuclear war, mass migration, threatening technological advances, economic collapse or collapse of a certain economic order. And Juliana, you've written that this sense of crisis contributes to generalized anxiety as well as melancholia for past ideals. So I wonder what, you see as the sort of political upshots of of this. I mean, I, I see too, I see like kind of the, the, melan the melancholia, I think is more obviously expressed in an attempt to like return to the 1950s. In fact, le the left and right both hold 1962 or whatever, you know, I mean, I'm thinking of, of, of kind of Western Europe and North America, but hold that as more or less as their ideal that they wish to return to, albeit in, in, in radically different ways, you know, in, in the, in, for the right, it might be in a kind of racialized form or one of a kind of focused on kind of more coherent family life, whereas for the left, it's about the welfare state and so on. But nevertheless, you know, that kind of left and right both are nostalgic and they're nostalgic kind of for the same period. I don't know if that's kind of the thing you had in mind. And then on the other side, also just about about um, anxiety, you know, I think the the anxiety about the future seems to express itself through anti-democratic politics, through 
uh, desire to declare an emergency to kind of ring the bell and say, someone come in and take care of this. Let's stop all this. Let's all stop all this fussing around and going through procedure and, and whatnot. Let's just get stuff done. Yeah, I think there's definitely an interaction between those those two effective um, dispositions, melancholia and, and anxiety. Um, the way in which I've discussed melancholia is, I suppose, it, it, it's, it's, it's broadening out from the left discussion on post-revolutionary melancholia, um, but trying to think about melancholia more generally as a social mood that is structuring of a collective temperament or even reflects the change in the structures of feeling um, in our time. And my argument has been that that is itself a consequence of the end of this last utopia of, of humanitarianism into which built struggles for human rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and because that is a, a, a utopia that so many people have bought into, this, this melancholy disposition is pretty general. And I'd say those who don't express that through their ideas and actions uh, are often people who have been nostalgic for, for past ideals in a different way, those on the left and those on the sort of traditionalist right. And so didn't buy into this last utopia. But I distinguish melancholia from nostalgia. And in fact, I'd argue that melancholia can actually be a basis for construction. It is um, in different, in, in different psychoanalytical, from different psychoanalytical perspectives, um, uh, a disposition that that reflects a loss of something, an object loss, uh, according to Freud, an object loss um, that is withdrawn from consciousness. So it might well be uh, a, a loss of an object that we never actually held on to, such as a utopia the ideal of, of the utopia was never ours in the first place and we lost it and we engage with that loss in a melancholy fashion but from that position freud then then sort of revising his ideas in mourning and melancholia then, then talks about the way in which melancholia can contribute to character um but but certainly it, it would seem that it provides a position from which uh, uh, one can one can look to new possibilities it's not necessarily backward facing in that in that sense, like nostalgia is, but it does it does potentially pacify for a period, and I think it then interacts directly with forms of anxiety, which are more perhaps reflective of uh, an emergency politics, the pressures of hyper productivity, the precarization of of work and remote working and people not knowing when they're supposed to work and having to to work at, at, at different hours and the the expectations imposed upon people by social media etc I, I think that that's a slightly distinct thing but that that melancholia does feed into um, I would I would then say that that is directly related to sorry, that being melancholia here, is di directly related to the way in which a new collective political horizon seems to have emerged, and that collective political horizon being catastrophe. And so I, I, I've, I've talked about a time of catastrophe um, that, that we are now living in. And when I make that 
So what, 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 yeah. Oh, sorry. Maybe you were going to explain that, but yeah, yeah, maybe kind of just bluntly, what, what do you mean by catastrophe? Right. So when I, when I, when I say that we're living in a time of catastrophe, it's not a sort of hysterical shouty claim. I'm not writing in caps lock or putting an exclamation mark at the end. It's not also not the sort of attempt to mobilize people to action sort of thing. You know, look, look at these things. They're really happening. Uh, We need to do something. In some sense, it's a it's a reflection on that disposition of people recognizing recognizing something, imagining something collectively, and thinking that we need to do something. But it would it also strikes me as uh, obviously and even shamefully parochial to think that it is one's own time in which the end will happen. And of course, there have been. There... <laughs> we should be so lucky, you know. <laughs> well, there, there have of course been apocalyptic or catastrophic or and catastrophic imaginations that have formed in different moments of modern history in the romantic period and just just need to look at the number of works of romantic art and literature that were entitled the last man and the ways in which even ideas of anthropogenic climate change were were discussed the the malthusian ideas of of overpopulation and and reaching the the period in which there would be a war a war over hunger and, and, and those sorts of things Carl Jaspers in, in the early 1950s talked about the difference between uh, a, 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 an imaginary conception of apocalypse and the real possibility uh, of an end of the of the end of the world but that in itself would seem to suggest that we are through our own through our own objective analysis able to say no this thing is really happening now however the emergence of a collective imagination of catastrophe be that in the form of ecological collapse nuclear holocaust or in fact just more generally uh, a collapse of of modernization the 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 disintegration of the the base for the pursuit of modern ideals like the work society with rights and welfare etc that collective imagination doesn't emerge from nothing. So it also emerge, emerges from facts. It also emerges from, from scientific um, developments. And so in that, in that respect, I'm not, I'm not disregarding uh, what underlies this imagination. On the contrary, in fact, I think if we're, if we're trying to engage with catastrophe normatively, politically, uh, we need to try and work out what are the bases of the current imagination and what that means for for organizing collectively um so what what i'm what i'm then doing is it's not also a positivistic claim about catastrophe it's it's perhaps um, me pointing to a psycho sociological um observation that that we see in our art and our, and our literature uh, in our music even cat- catastrophe everywhere and the entry to mm. a time of catastrophe to me, seems to be marked in more recent years by the assumption that, in fact, catastrophe, through our imagination, we realize that catastrophe is going to happen. And so we start to embrace collectively a politics of spoliation or a politics of destruction, voting in politicians who are ultimately telling the truth. And Bolsonaro is a good example, telling the truth in the sense that they say what we experience is a war for work go out there and fight each other. And so that, that's, that's what people who are, <laughs> yeah. uh, who are you know, on, on the breadline uh, are engaged in very precarious labor. Uh, some of them have, in fact, decided against 
making claims for for labor rights because the flexibility is a way of of, of work of, of working through this competition and embracing this this apocalyptic vision of of the end yeah which which is something that we discussed on this podcast in relation to Argentina's new president Javier Milei um, where there's also a kind of certain appeal to amongst the kind of most perhaps the most precarious precarious of a kind of dog eat dog libertarianism um it's a way as you say it's a way of working through that i mean i i'm putting when hearing you talk about kind of apocalypse and the sense of that it's you know your understanding of catastrophe being not a, a positive claim that everything is going to explode or implode or fall apart but that we have collectively a sense of of somehow impending catastrophe obviously lots of people have talked about the way that cinema has um, imagined or even willed on, you know, the, the the idea of that, you know, we we desired nine eleven or Americans desired nine eleven through their film production because it was already there, and I, it puts me in mind of a, a great film by by Michael Haneke, who's is probably one of my favorite directors, The Time of the Wolf, with with an yeah, always excellent Isabelle Huppert, who, you know, it's basically a a, 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 a kind of post apocalyptic scene, but unlike Hollywood, which somehow always imagines something heroic emerging out of this apocalypse, I mean, sometimes literally a hero, which leads kind of the people to some form of salvation. Um, it's just grim and kind of in, in some ways unspectacular um, and it's slow and grinding and barbaric, but just kind of you don't really like anyone in it and it's people behave in immoral ways you know there is no moral kind of heroism that emerges through these desperate conditions in fact it leads to a moral um lowering you know the um, moral kind of you know moral decay i guess amongst people because of of the scarcity and the trying conditions into which they're they're put that it becomes a war of all against all but not even in the kind of crazy, you know, zombie slasher kind of mode. It's just kind of slow and grinding. Anyway, the point of this is that I think one we should maybe recognize that more. I guess we should look that in the face because the temptation of apocalypse and imagining catastrophe as somehow being redemptive is the fact that it isn't, and that like redemption won't emerge from. The, the catastrophe we imagine that the culture industry keeps telling us is what what is you know what's around the corner and and is suggestive of of us desiring even that that apocalypse to happen. So I wonder if that I mean I don't know if that runs against what what you're 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 um, saying or or against it. You know whether we should we should be honest with ourselves that there is not going to be any salvation through some great emergency. Yeah, I, well, I, that's something. There's a point that's been raised by different catastrophists of the 20th century and most notably perhaps Gunther Anders um, who who talked about an apocalypse without kingdom so the apocalypse that that reveals but but at the same time there is there's nothing there's nothing after that there's no kingdom events I, I tend to draw a distinction between catastrophe and apocalypse apocalypse being a revelation and a revelation of a of an essential truth that exists within and I I, 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 I connect the development of uh, modernity to, to catastrophe, in particular through the development of technology and the role that technology has in showing and demonstrating the process of development to us. And it seems to me that there is already a process of, of revelation that happens through technological developments 
that precedes the catastrophe that we imagine on the horizon. The, the catastrophe on the horizon being um, eventually something that produces a sort of nothingness, uh, a meaninglessness, or it reveals the meaninglessness. But in fact, technolo technology already does that by by uh, subjugating human subjectivities in different in different ways. I think you're right about the the soothing effect of of uh, contemporary culture, art, and and film in particular. Um, so Slavoj Žižek refers to interpassivity, which is you know the vicarious experience of uh, of others in in apocalyptic circumstances, and 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 in fact, I think from the idea of apocalypse, we do draw a sense of peace. Uh, this is a point that that cultural theorist Ava Horn has made that after the apocalypse, at least it will all be over, so we can relax, and we can do that through film because <laughs> we yeah. see after the apocalypse, there being this nothingness that is tranquil. Now, that, that, that itself doesn't, uh, doesn't seem to imply uh, hope. And the question then is, if, if we buy into sort of the more pessimistic visions like that of, of Gunther Anders, what is the point of doing anything at all? Uh, do we just sort of fall into either a techno fetishism or a fatalistic resignation. So, from my reading of the development of modernity, I would tend to contest that position on the basis that there is always some element of contingency and that the catastrophe that we see on the horizon, we never know when it's going to happen or indeed if it will ever ultimately happen. We might live in the shadow always of, of nuclear weapons from now on or live in the shadow of um, uh, uh, apocalyptic climate change. But there are, there are possibilities of um, postponing at the very least those catastrophes that we collectively uh, foresee. And, and there it's... I suppose necessary to think through the continuities and discontinuities of modern development, of the, the, the contradictions of, of progress and progress as a sort of an antagonistic pole to catastrophe in some sense, to be able to work out what are the forms of organization that might lead to an imagination that could push back the catastrophic horizon uh, beyond some other form of future. Right. So, I mean, I guess, it, I mean, sort of anti-catastrophism is what you're arguing for in some sense. Or, I mean, I think maybe, but this is not, not necessarily from what you said, but th that we need to develop some sort of utopian horizon to, to drag us along and to clear away maybe the dark clouds, um, if that doesn't sound too kind of um, picture book. Well, it, it's not, it, it, I mean, perhaps that implies a more idealistic exercise than, I, than I'm proposing, um, because there's been no, no uh, shortage of exercising in reimagining re shit for the last 40 years. Um, and in fact, <laughs> right. And in fact, even before, before then, you know, the Rand Corporation and Hudson Institute in, in the aftermath of the use of, of nuclear weapons, uh, promoted the use of creativity and imagination to think about post-apocalyptic post scenarios. Um, but now, nowadays, you, see, you just need to look through the pages of policy think tanks and, and, and NGOs to see how much there is uh, that has been produced on reimagining the state, reimagining society, reimagining aid, reimagining markets, all, all of yeah. us reimagining democracy. And, and, and I see that as, 
as part of and this sort of this, this futurology, the foresight exercise, as part of a an epistemological posture, which is sort of the one that I was talking about before with my reference to Mark Duffield about about Homo insius, the 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 the, the unreasoned or ir- irrational being, our incapacity to to think through risks, and and then our sort of our concession to 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 the risk society, and in contradiction then to the claims of Giddens, for example, about you know us, us being able to invent the future through through our management or, or mitigation of risks. I would I would see all of this as as part of an exercise in securitizing the present. So rather than just sitting around and imagining new, uto- new utopias, what I'm suggesting is these 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 new utopias, should they come about, will only emerge from strategy and organization. And that strategy and organization at the end of modernity, once we have seen through the development of um, uh, uh, material process that we can't take for granted historical subjectivities and and a concreteness that would would provide a basis for the rupture that that invents a new a new future. So, I mean, let me take an idea which was very present in the last episode that we did um, with Chris Catrone and and George, I think, suggested that we kind of discuss this, in fact, because, I mean, it's basically the question about the, you know, of um, the, the weight of dead traditions. Because a lot of the reimagining that you mentioned, I mean, you know, particularly on the left, I don't mean so much kind of centrist think tanks, but also the strategizing, whatever, is so beholden to images derived from the experience of the new left, particularly, but even also of some of the failures of, of, of the old left, of Stalinism, that when we think we're redoing, reimagining or being creative or innovative, what we're doing is just unconsciously rehashing the past and that that's part of the stuckness of of politics and stuckness of left politics which is that it it takes as the touchstones of left politics actually what are moments of failure or products of failure and so i mean so in terms of of if we're going to be serious that it's all fucking over right that like modernity as we knew it you know 1789 to 1989 or whenever you wish to date it, but the kind of a lot, so much of it is over. Certainly the 20th century is over. We should forget, forget, I don't mean not learn lessons from, but kind of really we, the 20th century is very much over. Um, We don't belong to that period anymore. Perhaps we need to think more about the 19th century or maybe not think about the historic parallels, but I mean that fundamentally we're in in a situation where capitalism still exists. There's elements of modernity that still persist in terms of the, the contradictions and crises of modernity are still kind of ours. In fact, a lot of what we see in terms of irrationalism today is itself a kind of very classic yeah. crisis of modernity sort of manifestation or symptom. But that we, I think, how kind of try to take seriously this idea, the idea that I think is associated with what you talk about in terms of catastrophism, which is the end of modernity, that then we have to return really to return to 1806 or return to, I don't know, you know, um, 
but but effectively that we kind of wipe the slate clean from with a lot of, of a lot of the accumulated tradition that we've picked up because maybe none of that's useful um, that we have to kind of return to the yeah. start. You can't return to, I mean, so, you know, someone, someone like you have to return to the Greeks, you have to return to blah, 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 but let's not go that far. But in some sense that we need to wipe the slate clean of, of the second half of the 19th century and the, and the, and the 20th century. And I think maybe, maybe my position is expressive of a reluctance to admit the end of the dialectic and uh, sort of with, with tongue in cheek, I would I would wear a hat and states make make history dialectical again or make history messianic again or something like that. <laughs> um, what I'm, what... I, w- I want to get one which is make Brazil the future again, but that's 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 a different discussion. <laughs> yeah. So what 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 I'm what I'm suggesting is that in in a, in a time of catastrophe. There's a need to move beyond the conformity of postmodern theory, for sure. But there's also a need to move beyond nostalgia for the assurances of, of modernity and modernism. But that doesn't mean disregarding all modern ideals. In fact, if, if I thought that, I wouldn't have, have named the institute that we created this year Alameda. So Alameda is a, is a reference to the final speech of Salvador Allende and uh, my my parents were exiled from, from Chile in 1973. And in his final speech, he, he said, sooner rather than later, the great Alamedas, that is the great avenues, will open up again through which the free man will walk to construct a better society. So the idea of a pathway or pathways to, to a, a future, I think is still absolutely necessary to struggles in the present and struggles even for, for necessity, struggles for, for life. But that doesn't mean that we, we can rest upon the same same secure uh, premises that that existed 50 years ago or, or more and there are also certain problems with the modern project what he's speaking obviously that encompasses a huge amount of stuff that i think are, are worth recognizing and the, the fact that of course capitalism is centering itself but modern philosophies of history were also centered on certain populations and just for strategic reasons, let alone moral reasons, the need to engage with other traditions of struggle in a, in a, materiali- in a materialistic or with a materialistic basis uh, become absolutely necessary. So, so I'm not, I'm not in any mean, by any means you know, saying forget, forget all that modern stuff. And in fact, this is, maybe Alex, I'll put this question back to you because you like, you, you like reading Robert Quartz. You buy into his idea of collapse of modernization, more or less, as far as I recognize. And yet on your Twitter profile, you describe yourself as a modernist. So how, how, do, you, how do you marry those? I, look, I'm the host here. I don't get, I don't get asked questions. Well, no, but, this okay, is not but, how but, this works. Okay, well, I'll, I'll take it a bit further. <laughs> no, no, no. further because either, either you, you, you have to try and resolve that tension or your self-description of, of, uh, as, as a modernist is just sort of postmodern irony, <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah. Right. No, I mean, I, I, I'm, um, I'm in two minds about it. I'm, I'm, you know, genuinely kind of ambivalent. I think of myself sometimes as a retro modernist, but I, I, at the same time, am entirely cognizant of the fact that that is bullshit. I mean, that that's a bullshit idea. That that itself is is kind of so self contradictory. That like, how could you have a a modernity and a modernism which is retro? 
be oriented to the future. But you know, ultimately, you, what it ends up being is a sort of the melancholia that you're that you were talking about earlier of a kind of referring back to the images of the future that we had in the past, and that's kind of sad. Because I know we're not going to go back to you know 1960s national developmentalism, nor that matter to kind of uh, 1910s Bolshevism or whatever you know that kind of these things belong to the past. But I still think that there's the project of modernity as opposed to the process of modernity to make that distinction. The process of modernity being kind of the machine, if you want to put it in simple terms, the, all the kind of automating and self-automating processes of things speeding up, things becoming um, you know turbulent and self-contradictory, and all that stuff that kind of happens not as a product of, of human subjects, and the pro and the and the and the project of modernity being the attempt to uh, increase individual and collective autonomy and liberation from, you know, um, natural and social determinants, right? So basically becoming freer, the project of, in, of individual and collective autonomy. And that's something that I would want to hold on to. And that's why I would still hold on to, you know, being a modernist. But I just think maybe a lot of the politics of the and the political forms and social forms that we've known for the past 150 years are things that we should let go of because they're no longer useful and refer to a time which is actually quite radically different from ours, radically different from ours because they refer to a period in which capitalism had had an outside. It had an outside either as, you know, a future, you know, supposedly under, under you know, socialism or socialist movements within capitalist countries yeah. or indeed in kind of pre-modern or feudal past, which capitalism could still hope to kind of conquer, claim, rationalize, colonize, etc., and now we don't have that anymore. We live in a period of total capitalism. And I think we have to reckon with that. And that makes our world very, very different to what it has been over the 20th century and, and much of the 19th century, which is maybe why we need to go back to kind of, you know, the immediate post-enlightenment period and, and start from there, rethink everything anew, but without kind of abandoning everything, you know, like, <laughs> not, you know, it's, you have to be open-minded, but not so open-minded that your brain falls out, you know. That that's the that's the idea <laughs> to, <laughs> to finish on a yeah. really dumb note. Yeah, no, I, I I think I think broadly speaking, I'm I'm in agreement with you on on that. And um, sorry, my lights went out here because the, the power just cut again. But speaking of modernity, <laughs> yeah, well, of of the development at least, I think there's perhaps a, a slight difference in the way that we. The, the targets that we choose or the, the, the objects upon which we focus our, our analysis to try and work through that same problem. And my focus on catastrophe is ultimately aimed at working through the relationship between material process, imagination, ideology, and organization, right? I think I know. I'm sorry. I'm not, I'm not supposed to be posing questions to you, but but <laughs> I think we've had we've had this conversation before about about the discussion of contemporary morality and oh, we have light again uh, about contemporary morality and culture uh, identity, and I think I, as I said before, for for moral and strategic reasons, but but also for for trying to understand the right object of analysis for for the political intellectual project that that I've embraced. I would tend to to think that 
too much attention to questions of identity politics at times lead to lead us to to reify culture in a way that in fact grants it a greater force of determination in historical processes than it probably has or needs to and and i th- i think here the 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 point of focusing on collective imagination is actually to try to go beyond some of the the moral disputes that are happening uh today uh, on that nebulous surface mm. and try to understand that actually what is the collective basis on which these mm, political and moral antagonisms are forming um and how can that transform into a, a basis for a social uh change or a mass movement leading to social social change all right very good i i think yeah to conclude there are still people out there who want to be more free um yeah. and we should work with that i guess <laughs> yeah. um all right unless anybody has any final points um juliano thanks very much for coming on um this feels like the beginning of a discussion which we then have to kind sure. of take on at 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 a future point in time Maybe when when uh, you know the catastrophe happens, maybe it's already <laughs> happened by the time listeners are, are. I made that joke already about the previous episode, but we don't know. We don't know what's coming. You know, maybe January twenty twenty four is when it all happens. Anyway, let us know, listener, if if all has happened. Communicate to us from the future. All right, listeners, thank you for being with us, Juliano. Thanks again for for joining us. We'll do this again, uh, George, Phil. Thank you as well, and uh, catch you next time. Thanks a lot. Bye.